this year. I've really gone deep into Twitter this year. Um, it's it's a chance to connect on a, a whole different level. Like a, it's like an actual human connection when you when you talk to someone over a podcast. I feel, and yeah. instead of in DMs or in Twitter um, comment sections, it's you, you get value from it, but it's not. I don't know. It doesn't feel like a proper human relationship. And what I found is, is having conversations with people that I find interesting, I also get a chance to dive deeper into what I find interesting about them and think of questions that I want to ask them to really, you know, get deeper on, on how their perspective is of, of life and certain things. And it's just, it just makes the value that I get from that person and that relationship a hundred times more valuable. And it's content. It's content that I can post out regularly um, I can engage with another person's community. It's um, it's for me. It's a it's a culmination of all the things that that social media is um, like works well for, and, and building a community and and all that stuff. Uh, I didn't want to just be a, a consumer. I wanted to to actually be active in the community and producing content. And a podcast, I feel like, is very easy to start up and to especially this year with remote working becoming so commonplace everyone's got a setup at home with a microphone a laptop and a webcam so it's and i've just started dming people that i thought i was completely out of just people that i thought i couldn't touch and i couldn't get near and i ask them a question via twitter dms and then they respond and then we have a great conversation and then that leads to me wanting to, to get them onto my podcast so that I can go even deeper on the things that I, I think are really interesting about that person. Um, oh, I could talk about this for hours. There's just so much value that I found. And I feel so alive these last, this last month where I've spoken to um, over a couple dozen people in Twitter DMs that have led to uh, me booking talks in January that I just feel like the, the 20, that 2021 is going to, start off with like a really good pace and momentum for the year ahead of just me gaining value and producing content and becoming wiser and um, getting a better perspective of, of the world. Yeah. There's a lot. <laughs> I, I, I think for me, it's the, it's the conversation thing. You're completely right. I, I've been podcasting for a couple of years and it was always a solo podcast for me. And mm. I, I only did, I did six episodes where um, I've spoken to somebody and it was a different podcast. And I did that a few years ago and it, and it was a load of effort. I talked about this the other day and it was a load of effort to set it up because I went out to, to their place of work or, or to the house or whatever, set up all the kit. And, and this year I thought, well, I've made all these connections with people. It'd be really cool to actually sit down and talk to people. So I haven't done a solo episode of this podcast that we're recording right now. I haven't mm-hmm. done a solo episode of this um, in a couple of months. And it, it's been amazing wow. to talk to people because I love talking to people. I don't think there's anything better in this world to sit down and have a conversation with someone. And yeah, you're right. The, the whole, th- the way I've set this up, the fact that it's live streamed, the fact that it's it's one hit, one record and it's out, everything I've set up is designed to kind of force a conversation regardless you can't you know you can't sit there and be silent you've, you've got to yeah. be ready to talk and it, I, I think yeah just conversations are just amazing and it's it, it's been a, a really cool time for me as well I've been doing this for about a month or two now um, and every single person I've talked to for different reasons have been awesome it's just so mm-hmm. cool to be able to just talk to people all around the world yeah, my next my next kind of challenge is wondering if I'm if I'm absorbing too much if I'm meeting too many people that I can't really give every person that I'm talking to the the time of day to really you know go deeper into and and kind of um, make the most of the value that I'm getting. Uh, that's one thing that I've I've found is is am I overbooking myself? Uh, but we'll see we'll see if I get to that point. But um, I think the upside is is so much better than the other side, which is doing nothing and just letting time tick by. And this really plays into the whole, you know, you only live once. Um, just do the best you can to meet as many people as you can and see what opportunities come up. So it's, 
Yeah. I like that lifestyle. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And the the reason I, I'm always saying on Twitter, even even though I'm half joking, about you should start a podcast is is because of all the opportunities it gives you. It gives you a reason to talk to people. It gives you a reason to slide into the DMs and ask them for a conversation. It gives you a exactly. reason. It gives you a reason to promote them. It gives you a reason to talk to them. It gives you a reason to make real connections. There is like literally no downside to making a podcast. The the thing about making a successful podcast, that's not even that's not even on my horizon. I, I don't even mm. care about the downloads. The fact that it gets uploaded online and that it's on YouTube and stuff is just not even a consideration. It's just yeah. purely a selfish thing for me. I don't know if it's the same for you. It's just a, it, a, a chance to talk to people. Totally. I, I got told by one person that they, they listened to the podcast and thought it was really interesting and ended up sharing it. And, and that was like huge for me because it, it is coming from a selfish part of me that I just want to, I guess, network and meet as many people as possible. And, and I really don't see like the one thing that I've found from talking to people that have a couple thousand followers when I have a couple hundred is they feel the exact same way I do. And I'm sure someone with 10,000 or a hundred thousand feels the exact same way. And that's not a proper uh, metric that I use to compare myself to others. I, I love talking to other people and hearing their perspective on the world and letting that inspire me. And if someone I feel like is very intelligent and is, you know, very efficient and productive, then that is someone that I kind of hold up on a pedestal as someone that inspires me, Um, not someone with a big following and tons of engagement. Um, Well, all a big following on Twitter means is that they're good at Twitter or they've got a popular thing that, you know, (laughs) it is all it means. It doesn't mean that they're any better than anybody else in any way. Um, Often I've I've found with having conversations with some is that they're quite deficient in other places because they've put all their effort into Twitter. So they they might have an amazing Twitter, but they might not be great at speaking or Mm. they might not be great at making videos or writing or or whatever because they've put all their effort into Twitter. It's it's a funny Mm. old beast, Twitter. And it's a funny old beast when you look at the numbers. Um, Mm. I've got quite a few people on Twitter who I, I guess I could call quote unquote friends who have got quite a lot of followers and they aren't any different to anybody else. It's but there's there's just this thing inside you, isn't there, where you think they're better than me, and you just can't help think it, and it it makes you scared to DM them. Yeah, yeah. There is like a I've I've tried to to convert that into um, like motivating things, and not like I think I've I've started to to. Um, interpret social media in a healthier way um, from my perspective from how I used to. Uh, I think social media is a very um, manipulating beast and I think everyone kind of needs to take responsibility for how they see things online and and take note of how they react to when they see things and I think that's like a whole conversation in itself is uh, is how you take care of your mental health with, with social media. I had that exact conversation with somebody the other day uh, and the point that I was making is that it pretty much exactly the same point as you. Uh, social media is designed to manipulate you. That That mm. is the whole intention of it. It is in, intended to be addictive. And if you aren't closely guarding that fact, just like anything else, you know, drinking, um, any drug or whatever or anything, it's, social media is designed to keep you there time on app is the thing that they value above all else and they want to keep time on app high so they mm. they'll they'll make anything they can to make you stay there um and you do have to be careful of that because it's uh it, it can be addictive the thing i said in the the podcast i was recording the other day is that uh, everybody who's fairly successful on twitter they're all either hiding a twitter addiction or they they're being quite upfront about it that they've got a twitter addiction because you need to be like that to some extent to be able to grow. I remember seeing Oliver Canton's figures when he was posting them on Twitter a couple of months ago, and I I post about 1,000 to 1,200 tweets a month, and I think that's a lot. And when Oliver was growing, and he's at about 25,000 followers now, when he was first growing, he was writing 12,000 tweets a month. Wow. 
Uh, and he was showing these figures. He was showing the analytics. Like, Jesus Christ, I, I feel like I'm always on Twitter and I post a 1,000. So what does 12,000 mean? It's, that is literally wow. more than 10x. It's insane. Yeah, I've gone through phases where I've tried out Hype Fury and scheduling tweets. And I think it's it's all about, I think, just experimenting, finding your community, finding the the process that works for you. Um, sometimes I go through these these periods of like a whole month where I just don't open up Twitter at all. And I feel, I think it does get to me after like a month when I feel like I'm very disconnected. But And then it comes back in waves where I have, you know, I do 10 tweets in a few minutes because I just have all these ideas that come to me and I just want to share them all. And I think that's that's how I'm taking it as, is I'm not trying to become a robot in how monotonous I upload. I just try and let the world inspire me to, you know, do what feels right and know the benefit of tweeting and know what happens when I don't. And that's just the waves that goes, like, that's the process of life. That's that's my perspective. What made you start not just the podcast, but, kind of taking Twitter seriously and basically trying to start building a personal brand? What was the thing for you to do that? Yeah, I went through, so I I created my Twitter account like 10 years ago plus. And then I, I think the first phase of Twitter for me was following a few celebrities and not really getting much value out of it. The second phase was I was quite deep in the film industry and I started following a bunch of um, filmmakers and right. content creators. And that kind of went through a phase of my life where I started connecting with the marketing Twitter community. Mm. And actually I got a job working as a, a podcast editor for Lewis house on his school of greatness podcast. Uh, I worked with him for almost two years making marketing content. So chopping up his podcasts into minute long um, Instagram videos, 15 second Instagram story clips with uh, headers and subtitles and uh, I love doing that and it was a remote job that I did and I got that job because I followed him it was actually so the whole Gary V wave that's what got me into Twitter yeah. um, uh, four or five years ago and that was during a time where I was really passionate about being a videographer and I followed his videographer D-Rock and that led to other videographers that I followed and it was kind of like a, a videographer community and that also was hand-in-hand hand with the kind of YouTube uh, phase that I was going through as well, where I was following filmmakers and videographers there, people like Matt Como and uh, Tyler Babin, uh, Casey Neistat. Like, that was that phase of social media for me. Uh, but then I – so I was freelancing as a videographer, really enjoyed that time in my life, um, just did a bunch of contents online, um, but then I took a sidestep and went into the gaming industry and that was for me a, a way to find a more stable career because freelancing was very unstable yeah. and it didn't seem like a, a smart investment at the time. Um, I was having fun, but it wasn't something that I could continue and form a career out of, I found. Um, I'm kind of jumping all over the place in the timeline, but um, that led to me going more into the business Twitter side of things and uh, and then leading to the design Twitter community. And then Jack Butcher was actually a huge influence at the beginning of this year that um, led to an even bigger community of people. And then it's just kind of slowly kind of manifested throughout the year of me taking more action with the um, the ideas that I have instead of just thinking on things and writing ideas down on a notepad, but actually just going out and doing things. And that's what led to the podcast is me just not thinking about things for more than 10 seconds before I put that into action. And if I think about DMing someone, I just do it now. I don't even think about it because in the past when I thought about it, I just never did it. And so I've really just tried to turn my lifestyle 180 and uh, create a bias for action and just keep acting, just put like, do as much as I can because there's, there's nothing to lose. And that's my mindset at the moment. Document, don't create as Gary V says. 
<laughs> exactly, yeah. So it all it all loops in. That message has been repeated thousands of times that I've seen in my feed over the last few years, and I've finally come to a point now where I'm I actually feel like I'm in, in control of of that process, and I don't feel down every time I see. Well, I would agree with those those uh, posts and those statuses when I'd see them, but um, I never felt like I was quite living up to it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's just a little bit of yeah, totally. The, the Gary V wave did that did that strike you as well? Were you a part of that? Yeah, uh, Gary V was a big influence on my thinking for a long, long time. Uh, a lot of his messages messages have sunk in now, uh, and I don't really consume his content anymore. To be honest, uh, to some extent, I feel like I'm past it. And you get a bit, you get a bit sick of the same messages. I still love him. I still love watching his his keynotes and things like that. He's such a an amazing speaker. But he's hammering home a point, and I think he even says in one of his videos, "I want you to get to the point where you're sick of watching my content and you go past it and you don't consume it anymore." And I feel yeah. like I got to that, and I, I was there. I've been watching his stuff for probably a similar amount of time to you, five or six years early in the kind of wine, just in the wine library days when he started to come out of that and he started to become this this phenomenon on the internet and nobody knew where he came from. And that really piqued my curiosity because I, I've been aware of the whole idea of personal branding for a long time. I'm in marketing, I'm a designer. They, they're, uh, there's personalities in every industry and there's a lot in the design industry. So you're kind of aware of this idea that some people are more popular than others, but you can't figure out why, and you can't put your finger on what they did different. All you can realize is that certain people are always at conferences, well, when they happened. Certain people were always at conferences giving talks, and you wasn't. And they, just in terms of the design industry, they weren't a better designer than you, but for some reason, they were more popular and you couldn't work it out. And I always had that in my mind. Why were they more popular? And it's always bugged me. And then when I discovered Gary V and I started watching his content, I started to realize what it was. It was this idea of documenting and not creating and this this freedom to share everything and not care. And when you, you start to realize that, you realize that in any industry, the, the same is true. So a lot of the big people in the design industry, in the early days, they were sharing uh, maybe all their boilerplates that they were working on uh, in terms of dev stuff, you know, like web dev stuff. They might have been sharing a ton of design resources. They usually had a popular blog. That was what most of them had. And the blog became popular because they were writing regularly because they were documenting instead of creating, etc., etc. And... Once I started to realize that, it probably took me a couple more years until this year to actually action it. And Jack Butcher was the catalyst for me as well. I think he's influenced half of the internet to do things this year, to be honest. Um, and I th everybody I talk to somehow comes around to Jack Butcher. He, he's, he's like the god of everything right now. Um, so I went on the same path. I discovered Jack and he's got a very similar trajectory to me. He's been a designer for around 10 years. I've been a designer for 15. He's a similar age to me. He's from the UK. He's got a lot of similar things to me. And I saw what Jack was doing. And in and I saw the parallels between Gary V's stuff because a, a kind of a skill I've had for a long time is to be able to look at someone and see how their old marketing works. The kind of You can almost see the marketing plan behind it. And I saw that Jack was repeating what, Gary V was doing and when I saw Jack doing it I realized that I could do it because he's literally everything that I am he's exactly the same almost in, in every way and that led me to start doing everything I had a lot more time on my hands because I was stuck at home we, we still had a busy design agency but somehow when you're sitting at your computer at home and there's no traffic or, or whatever it just felt like I had more time so I was I was making daily videos. I was I, I started a design podcast. I was still making the other podcast. I started making visuals on Twitter. I just went into like creation overdrive. I started I started Twitter. Well, I've I've been on Twitter since 20, 2008, I think. 
but I actually started taking Twitter seriously and I said I was going to write 10 tweets per day uh, forever, basically, and, until I get sick of it. Today, I'm, I'm still not sick of it. So, um, yeah, I just went into creation overdrive and this idea of documenting rather than creating. And that kind of led me to this point where we are right now. And in many ways, I don't feel really much further on in the journey. <laughs> but in, in other ways, I feel much further along because at this at the beginning of the year, I wouldn't have, and I don't know if this was a, maybe this is a thing to ask you as well. At the beginning of this year, I didn't want to promote myself. And that was the thing that always stopped me from doing anything. I knew all the skills. I had all of the skills. I knew how to do it. But I wouldn't do it because I was afraid of promoting myself. Was that the same for you? Totally. Yeah, I I consider myself an introvert. And it kind of, uh, some people say I seem very extroverted, but I get very exhausted from social situations. And But I love meeting people, but I would consider myself an introvert. And I don't like selling myself. Um, and I did, I think I do still struggle with that. Um, I think marketing myself is an area that I don't, do the best. Um, but what I've found is uh, as soon as I started creating more content, um, marketing that content was a lot easier than having, you know, a blank Twitter profile and then going, okay, I need to market myself. It's, it's felt a lot more natural, uh, this last month when I'm promoting a conversation that I'm having with someone else and where I actually feel like there's value shared. I think me create, um, a year ago, I wasn't sure how I could provide value to the community. And that was something that stopped me from tweeting, putting myself out there, feel, feeling like I was part of the, the community was that I didn't feel like I was providing any value. And in, in the last month, I think there's, there's kind of two sides of me. There's the, the, the personal branding side of me, but then there's also the gaming side of me. And I'm on this mission now of trying to, uh, build the New Zealand gaming uh, game development industry. And that's sent me on a wave of confidence of wanting to put myself out there and meet people. And I'm going to be creating a podcast in the new year that's strictly for New Zealand game developers. And my podcast is almost a testing ground for that. Uh, so that's my kind of bigger ambition. And, and, I, and that just kind of happened at the same time as me just going, screw it, I'll reach out to these people on Twitter, see if they're interested in the conversation, and then having overwhelming positive responses from those people and booking a bunch of conversations like this one that have just provided so much value. Uh, so I think I do really struggle to market myself, but I think as long, if I have a product or a piece of content that I'm pushing, then marketing myself is a lot easier because it's not like it's I, I i i don't want to be seen as an egotistical person and that i think i'm the most important person out there uh, i just want to provide value and help other people and and that has definitely been a bit of a shift that i've noticed in this last month is i'm i'm tweeting a lot more and i'm marketing myself a lot more because i'm doing stuff and that helps yeah. me uh just put ideas out there and I feel like I'm I'm kind of building momentum rather than it being just nothing happening and me trying to come up with something inspirational Uh, documenting over creating same thing again yeah I I, for the longest time with Twitter and I guess with everything else it was this idea that who am I to say these things do you know what I mean I I, even even though I've been a designer for 15 years. I've run my own agency for 10 years. Who am I to talk about design? Nobody knows me. What what value is is my opinion? And then what value is my opinion on anything else? I don't just talk about design. It's pretty rare I do. What what value does my opinion have on anything else? And I think this is this loop that everybody goes through that you start to think no one's going to give a shit about what I think, so I won't share what I think. And the only way you make people care about what you think is by telling them what you think and let the market Mm. decide as to whether what you're saying has got value. And most of us do have value to share. I'd be willing to bet that nearly all of us have got value to share. We've all got different experiences and ways that we've gone through life and 
we've all got some kind of expertise, but we, we get stuck at that point where we think, oh, I'm not an expert or I'm not enough of an expert to say it or I'm going to wait five years before I've done the job for five years or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. I think a great example of it on Twitter is a, a chap called Catalin Pitt. Um, he's, a, he's a developer now and he started making content online when he was learning to be a developer. So he was sharing his journey of learning to be a developer. So by the time he'd learned to be a developer, he had a huge following on Twitter and it was easy for him to get a job. He literally knew nothing and he set it up that way. So look, I don't know anything and I'm going to share everything that I learn. People find a bunch of value in that. And as long as you're kind of open and honest and I think above all else curious, I think there's value for anybody to share anything. And that was the sticking point for me personally that I couldn't figure out how I could share what I knew without feeling fake. Mm. I think, I think there's um, a shift that happened that I really, I I think hits the nail on the head and that's seeing social media as a friend, uh, like as someone that you can talk to during your journey. And I think what made that shift for me is reaching out to people through Twitter DMs or creating relationships with people on Twitter so that I felt like when I wanted to make a tweet, I was tweeting to those friends that I'd made and those connections that I'd made instead of feeling like I was sending something into the void of the internet that I wanted to go viral and be seen by millions of people. It was, I just wanted to to make a tweet because these people that I've been talking to in the DMs have the same feelings and this bit of information I feel like is, is part of the same conversation that we're having in, in the DMs. And it's, that's kind of been a bit of a shift is like, I'm just talking to my friends on Twitter and, and that's yeah. made it feel a lot more natural, a lot more, like a lot less, um, uh, less pressure and less, uh, less stakes involved. It's just casual. When I first started doing it in February, and I, excuse me, and I had this goal of writing 10 tweets a day. I felt like I had to write 10 perfect tweets every day. That was kind of my goal to write, 10 amazing things every single day. And that's quite a challenge to write, you know, 70 things a week. And I found that really tough for the first couple of months, but I, I carried on because I knew it was going to be hard because I'd never done it. And then as soon as I started to realize that I didn't have to be perfect and I didn't have to put across these uh, ideals, I guess, of being perfect, my content got much better. It got much more me and people started engaging with it much more and I started to get way more followers and it was the same for me I started building a network of people on Twitter and I was I guess kind of writing to them and also not being afraid of just being me and 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 then I think the decision then becomes much easier for somebody to decide whether they're going to follow you or not because they know who you are uh I'm a bit daft on Twitter if you don't want people who are daft on Twitter you don't follow me it's an easy decision but when you don't show that side of it and then somebody follows you, they quickly unfollow you because they realize it isn't you or they watch one of your podcasts or videos or whatever. They realize they're not, you're not the same person. So I, I, think, I think you're going about it the right way. Um, and, and, and to be so, so early on in your Twitter journey as well and to kind of not be caring about all of the things that I obsessed over I think is really important as well because mm. when I from February to probably June I was obsessed with figures and it isn't healthy and it doesn't make the figures go higher or quicker or anything you know a, a, a watched kettle never boils or whatever the phrase is um, yeah. even though it does Um or it doesn't boil faster or whatever it is. A watch clock and all those kind of things. And yeah, and since I stopped watching my figures, nothing changed. If, if anything, they went higher, quicker, because I was caring less about them and I wasn't as bothered about making perfect, whatever perfect content is. Mm. I, uh, I want to ask you, I feel like I, I really love your designs and I feel like you've done a great job at, at staying consistent with creating new designs, creating new pages with new designs and new ideas. And I've loved following you on, on that journey. Uh, and I'd love to know how much you force yourself to be creative. And if you have a process f- 
for doing that. Um, to come up with with ideas and designs. Would... Uh, do I have a process? My my process is is usually I see a quote, I see an idea, and I make the idea. I th- this is this is a thing that a lot of designers will tell you when they've been a designer for a long time. They'll almost design something in the head before they put it on paper. So yeah. I design it in my head and then I make it on on a screen. Uh, if it's something more complicated other than a little visual on Twitter, I'll maybe do it in a sketchbook or something first. But yeah. the majority of the work goes on in my head, but that's only because I've been doing it so long. Um, so the process isn't that exciting or that complicated. It's, it's, I've, I often think that as a designer or any creative, the first five years or so of your career is about building this bank of ideas up in your head that you Mm. it's like this big kind of uh, matrix of of ideas almost like a big spreadsheet and when you see something you uh, you know you've got to make something new and it's got to be about love and hate or something like that you can cross-reference this spreadsheet almost instantly of all these times where you've made something that is about those concepts and it makes yeah. it very quick to to get to the idea within a range of what you already know. Yeah. So, so when I'm doing the when I'm doing the visuals on Twitter, they are done very quickly, and they're they're almost like spur of the moment things. And when they don't, when they aren't spur of the moment, I don't do them. I pick a different thing to do a concept about. Hmm. Yeah, not that that's exciting. Not that exciting. No, but <laughs> I think that that's the the clearest process that exists is to just do it. That's the the easiest thing. And I think if it takes you a long time to do that thing, then the more you do it, you'll get faster at it. To the point that fifteen years on, it's instantaneous. And I think people just need to stay committed to what they're passionate about, and they'll get better at it. They'll build that matrix of ideas and examples and and that's the definition of creativity and creating art is being inspired and then and then executing on it. Yeah, I, th- I think it's it's a, almost a brain type, or maybe not. No, not a brain type. I think that's unfair because I'm not sure whether I agree in that with that left and right brain thing. I think mm-hmm. it's I think it is a learned skill, but it feels almost magical, and I can't really explain it. But it is just from years of pumping out idea after idea after idea 99% of which are bad and then you get to the point where you have such a big bank of ideas that it becomes much much easier i've i've never bought into this idea that as as a creative so when i'm making a brand or, or something like that that sh- that you charge a lot of money for the the biggest lie that most design agencies tell you is that it's going to take x amount of months or x amount of whatever it doesn't it's Mm. it's a very quick process and then everything around it is designed to make it look like a long process uh the 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 kind of that you know when you see guides on logos and things like that you know after the the logo has been made and they show all these pretty guys they were done after they weren't done before this was mocked up in five minutes because they had a, a burst of inspiration that isn't wrong but that's how it is, and I, I, I haven't ever met a designer where it isn't like that. But then you, the idea almost is the is the first bit of it. That's the easy bit. The execution is the bit that's hard, and that's the bit that takes a long time to learn. Um, some some people have got loads of ideas and lack execution. Some people are amazing at execution and lack ideas. And I'm I'm lucky that. I've always practiced ideas first. I've got a very old school mindset when it comes to creativity and being a designer. And I've always looked to people um, like Alan Fletcher. You've probably never heard of these people. Um, Somebody like Alan Fletcher and Paul Rand and things like that who were like classic designers who were designer designers. And they always put the idea first. The idea is the most important thing. The execution doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how you do it. The idea is first, and if you look at any of my own obvious images, the majority of them are clever or witty or they've got something in them. 
that a lot of people won't see. They aren't pretty for pretty's sake, although some of them are, are quite nice. But the idea is what's more important than the, than the execution, and that's why they're purposefully kept very, very simple to let the idea mm-hmm. idea shine out of them. And this, to be honest, this ties a bit into video games because I'm massively into video games, and I want to come onto that. The this I've seen this as a trend in design and creative, the creative arts for quite a while where the idea is becoming way, way less important and the execution and the technical ability is way, way more important. That the the execution and the, how beautiful it looks and how amazing it is and how long it took somebody to make matters more than the idea. And ultimately, it's the idea that grabs somebody in the first place and it's the idea that keeps somebody there as well. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Totally. And I think that's why in video games, particularly, the indie games have often got amazing stories and they really grab you and they stick there. And a lot of the AAA titles that you see come out now just don't grab you. And you just don't stay with them. They look beautiful. They might be technically brilliant, but they just don't grab you the same way. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think indie, indie games are a lot more tied to... Uh, the passion of one or two people and an, an idea that they have and a, and vision. a vision and, and they're going to execute on that vision. Uh, how it's kind of like a, the startup mindset as well. You yeah. know, there's a hundred thousand startups that get created, but only a couple dozen of them actually become successful. And that's because each startup is, they have their own perspective and their own problem that they're solving and that that's what, and I guess startup mindset might not be the best example because it's an art form. It's, it's creative. It's, it's like a painting. Um, and whereas AAA games are a lot more formulaic, they're uh, bigger budgets, uh, bigger stakes. So they, they kind of have to rely on uh, what's worked in the past. They have to place bets on, um, on you know some really big ideas that they don't want to go too far off the the canvas of what's been done before. They want to kind of evolve the genre bit by bit, um, and they're working with a big team. So there's hundreds of conversations happening at once, and you need to have some alignment. You need to have some cohesiveness, and you kind of need to move this big boulder in a certain direction slowly. Whereas yeah. a, an indie game kind of can can change direction overnight if if the the creator wants you know is inspired by something they can they can create a completely new feature that changes the whole gameplay um so there's yeah there's pros and cons i'm learning a lot about the indie game dev community at the moment my experience has been very much in a corporate uh, studio environment um but i do have a lot of perspectives on creativity and art that i think play a big part in in the difference between a big studio and a little studio. It's also the same as, as filmmaking, um, big budget films that come out of big studios that go through years of development compared to a short film that's created uh, by a small team of friends uh, in a couple months. The, the, the difference in the ideas and the creativity is, is, I think, similar to games in that sense. I think whatever your med- medium you look at, it always comes down to the same thing that the smaller the team the more creative it is and the the better the better the ideas whatever way you describe that and I, I often think it comes down to the idea that creativity is quite selfish and if you have too many people involved who aren't on the same page who are all trying to be creative whatever that means it just it just kind of doesn't work and I, I often I often think the majority of probably ninety five percent of everything I do is done by myself, and when somebody else gets involved, uh, another designer, for example, uh, another designer I've worked with for ten years, it still it still never comes out the same as as having one person with a vision. Um, sometimes that's for the benefit. Sometimes it's not. And I do think that creativity is very selfish. And I, I couldn't make 
I couldn't make the images that I make on Twitter with another person. They wouldn't be the same because mm. as, so, as soon as I involve somebody else, and even if it was a clone of me, they literally a clone, they thought the exact same way as me. As soon as I made it, they'd go, well, have you tried this? And then I'd be trying to have an argument with them to say why I didn't do that. And they'd say, well, I think you should try that. And then you get this monster, don't you? And that's even with just two people. So mm. I, do, I do think it's quite selfish. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, big companies, I've, I've noticed, um, or the company that I'm working for now, we have a set of uh, company values and kind of principles. And same as the game that we're working on as well. There's, um, there's pillars to what the game needs to be. And those pillars were created by um, our CEO. And that's, I think that's, that's in a way trying to encapsulate the vision and to try and get everyone on board that vision. And um, I do, it's interesting because at this scale, uh, I do see the value in having uh, multiple teams. You know, you have people that are talented artists and t- talented um, environment artists, concept artists, um, 3D artists. And then you have the programmers and the people that are uh, senior at, at building tools and building systems. And then you have the designers that are um, narrative designers or uh, level designers and um, or game designers. And I, all those require different skill sets. And I do see the value in bringing all these talented people in their domain together and then having a, a combined vision so that you can create something that's bigger than what you can create on your own. Mm. Um, I think there is, but I, I do think that the downside of those projects sometimes is that there's too many cooks that the vision isn't aligned properly or it's, it kind of goes off track after a while because you're just dealing with like, you kind of play it safe. I think that's the, maybe the risk that a lot of big companies do is they play it safe more than, Mm. than banking and um, going down a route that isn't proven yet, but that's what you really believe in. That's probably what the, um, big studios miss sometimes is the um i'm not saying the studio here does because i i love i love what we're doing here and and dean hall has a uh, who's the ceo he has an amazing perspective on the state of gaming and where the survival genre needs to go and he's he's convinced me that that we're on the right path and i i'm sold on his vision of what he wants to do and and i'm now committed to making his vision come to life so, but does that work because there's a selfish vision still, isn't there? There's one person with a selfish vision. Yeah, but I think everyone interprets that vision in a way that makes them committed to it as well. Like I feel really excited about what we're making, and I would I would say because even though I'm not the one directing the ship, I I feel like we're all directing the ship you know it's it's not like yeah. dean wouldn't listen to any ideas that i have he would he would listen to them but it's it's a you're you're directing a massive ship into a direction and um i i i feel selfish in the sense that i'm proud of what i'm working on mm. um but yeah that's it's definitely an interesting conversation um when dealing with multiple people because I, and that's why I love doing my podcast is because I want to have that control over an IP and, and something that, that I've produced myself. So I am trying to balance both of those lifestyles at the moment, something that's bigger than myself yet something that's just me. (laughs) Yeah. That, that was partly why I started doing a lot of the things this year as well. I've got genius division, genius division is mine, but there's three directors. So it is, you know, there's three of us with 33% share, which is fantastic in most of the situations, but it never feels like yours, really. It mm. never feels like you have the, the one vision because there's three of you and you're, and you're always trying to... It feels like you, 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 you're kind of in, in the middle of a level playing field somewhere. You need to not be too much of one thing and not too much of the other. You know, I don't, I'm not knocking it at all. I love it, and that's why we've been doing it for so long. And long may it continue, but there is still, I think we all want this selfish creative project that is somewhere that 
just satiates that selfishness. Uh, I, I keep saying the selfish word because I can't think of any other way to, to describe it. And I think it is the perfect word for it because anything I can think of. The other thing I was thinking of as well is, uh, sorry, go on. Do you want to say something? Well, yeah, I just feel like, uh, the, like it's at the core of, uh, of your passion uh, as well. I think it's something that you have direct creative control over and it's kind of deep in your heart. Those projects that you have, it's, it's something that you are in love with. I mm. think but I think selfishness is, is another you know, way of interpreting that as well. But I think there are some more positive reasons that people would pursue personal projects as well. Um, I, I, that's why I think side projects are so valuable. Something I've done throughout my entire career when I work for somebody else and even when I work for myself. And you think, well, you work for yourself and it's your own agency. Shouldn't everything you do be part of the agency because it helps build the agency but you still want that thing that isn't anybody else's and you still want the thing that isn't related to the thing that brings in all your money you still want something else or at least that's how I've always felt because you want complete control over something and you want the thing that you can push at the edges that will bring back something to somewhere else yeah I, I agree. And, and I feel like nowadays with social media and people building personal brands, that companies are being more receptive to people pursuing personal projects after hours. And uh, as long as I guess they're not uh, competing like one-to-one, but yeah. I, I do think that that's a shift that's happening in, in the culture at the moment that's, that I'm really enjoying because I, I, I feel really motivated to do my, my work, but I feel also very motivated to, do my own personal projects too. Yeah, I, I, I guess you've heard of uh, Matt Kobach, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when I was when I was talking to him last week on the podcast, something he said really struck me about this. Um, and he said he'd said it a few other times, but I'd never heard him talk about it before. And he was talking about this idea of when you've, particularly social media, but it applies to any marketing, why wouldn't you want, everybody in your business to be evangelists online for your business why wouldn't you want them to be building their own following at the same time because then you've not only got the company following whatever shape that might take but you might even have 10 other evangelists who also have big followings on twitter or youtube or, or whatever takes their fancy why wouldn't you want that and yeah. And I said to him, well, why Why are people still not doing it? I still don't know many businesses that do it. There's a, a few I can think of, but there's not many. Uh, and, he, and he said, and I, I kind of put some words in his mouth, and I said, is it a trust thing? Is it is it a trust thing? And he said, yeah, to some extent I think it is. Um, but I just, uh, he just said, I just don't think people are there with it yet. I, th- I think it's still, that's an advanced level of social media acceptance still I still I think we're getting past the point now maybe five or six years ago if I was to tweet 10 times a day on Twitter all my clients would think I just spent all day on Twitter mm. and I, th- I think I feel like we're past that now I don't think mm. that somebody looks at your Twitter now and thinks that you're on Twitter all day but it still feels like in some other areas depending on who you're working with and what company you're in we're still in our infancy of social media acceptance for building bigger things than you in term in terms of building evangelists at a company for example because it's always hard to build a social following online for an inanimate object which a company is much easier mm. to build one for a person mm. yeah totally i think you're right and i think i have a lot to learn in that area as well and that's going to be i think a really interesting journey to see because I, I want to, to um, yeah I want my company to be successful I want um, I want people to, to be aware next year we're releasing a, a new survival game to the world and and I really uh, want it to succeed and be um, genre defying so that's that's once we're nearing release that's going to be what my Twitter is going to be it's going to be really just nailing the the differences and and what we're doing differently and um, like you said, being an evangelist and, and that's exactly 
what I want to be for the company. And I think because we're still in development and not a lot's been released, I can't say too much on it. But as soon as I can, and once the game is live, I'm going to be talking about it regularly. Well, I think this this idea of evangelists and almost characters as well, characters at a business is really powerful because when you've got somebody like you talking who has one perspective and then you can potentially have a designer who's talking all about the design and then you can potentially have a dev who's talking all about the dev stuff and the programming and everything. And if you can get that mix of everybody in the entire company being characters from the company, they're not only getting immense satisfaction from building their own following online, but they're also getting the company's getting the benefit from the other end as well. Everybody's talking about the game. Uh, and it, it still feels like there isn't many companies doing that. I think what I like about this company is um, when you have the, the, the GDC, the Game Developers Conference that happens yearly, it's the biggest uh, gathering of game developers and new releases for games and things that happens um, in the States every year. Um, this, my company is very forthcoming to making uh, our senior developers go do talks and talk about how they've built systems in the game. And at, at that level, I feel like that's quite uh, well adopted at, at, um, in the gaming industry is, is sending your developers out and your designers out to talk about their systems to the wider audience. Yeah. And I think that that, is the same thing at a social media level. It's instead of going to one event and speaking for one hour on how you did this thing in the game, it's having that same person do five tweets a day talking about the systems that they're building uh, for the game regularly. And then the other way, readopting the Gary V formula, documenting it instead of, instead of seeing it as a big presentation that you've got to do, they're on Twitter once a week, live streaming something from it. Uh, yeah, holding conversations with people or or, or whatever those kind of things. It, mm, totally, that, the gaming industry is, is is moving forward in that area because of things like Twitch. Um, uh, but mm. I, I think Twitch is adopting a lot of different industries, uh, documenting what they're doing, like the music industry, for example. And I've seen things like that starting to grow. But I think gamers that have a live streaming setup at home can very easily live stream them developing their personal indie projects as well. And I've, I've seen that quite a lot. So that makes me um, uh, hopeful that the gaming industry is a step ahead than the rest of the, you know, the average industry in terms of documenting the, the journey of, of their projects. I'm still trying to get most of my clients to tweet. So yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're, they're way more ahead than that. Nice. Um, what was I going to say? I forgot. Oh yeah. So we, uh, you was talking about being at a different games company before and the culture was quite different. Has that, has that been quite a shift for you to, to work that out, to, to come, to come to somewhere else? I, I mean, my, I'm still young. I'm still early in my career. Every year I, I have a new perspective on where I want to be, what I want to do. Um, I still feel very, um, like I can see opportunity, an opportunity at different companies in different, in different ways. Uh, I'm, I'm very much still a nomad in my career where I can become comfortable in a new environment. I haven't really settled I'm hoping that this company is is I'm in it for the long run, and that I, I can see the the culture developing, and I want to be a part of the journey of the of the company as it grows. Uh, but I do still feel like I haven't had enough experience to understand the the good and bad of a culture at a company, or how that changes over time. I think, um, yeah, I, I, I can't really provide too much value because I'm still learning way too much at a culture level of what that, what that really means. Mm. Have you been following the whole cyberpunk fiasco? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's been talked about a lot. Um, (laughs) It's, you you know, you never really know what is happening behind the scenes um, and, and what causes delays and, and why certain issues happen when, 
you you know you think a, a game of that scale should have caught you know certain issues long before like they released uh, i hope that there's more that's released on what the production process was like for um cd project red and their company and um you know because it's the last few months they've they've it sounds like they've been ripping their hair out and now with the release of the game with mixed reviews it's um yeah it's 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 we're still living inside the unfolding of the game being released and if it's going to have longevity um but um yeah it sounds like a a bit of a a a mission for them at the moment they're they're still working through the the hard yards of develop delivering a stable and finished game I think of such a big scale. I think they'll turn it round um, for the benefit of anybody who doesn't know what we're talking about. So, Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven came out a couple of days ago, last week now, um, and it they released early reviews for the PC, and it's got glowing reviews. Um, and there were a few people tinkering and tittering then when the PC reviews came out about bugs and inconsistencies and things like that. And then it got released. All the review embargoes got released for the consoles a couple of days ago, and the early reviews are very mixed. To like you said, mm. to, to be fair, they're very mixed, and it's got everybody obviously jumping on the bandwagon, saying, "You know, why have they released a shoddy product?" Blah blah blah. They CD Projekt Red even released a statement saying that they're going to offer refunds to people um, if they're not happy. And this has obviously sent shockwaves through lots of people. This is quite unprecedented that they've done this, coming off the back of making a ridiculously popular game called Witcher Three, which which is you know it's it's everybody's favorite game if you like RPGs. So everybody is a little bit surprised by it that it's been allowed to happen. But a couple of things struck me straight away is that it got delayed a couple of times happens all the time in the game industry fair enough but it felt like they were getting pushed to release it at this point in time and it clearly wasn't ready and they, mm. they were getting pushed from several probably internal pressure impression pressure from fans no doubt pressure from fans because it had been delayed several times they'd even said we're not going to delay it again and then they delayed it again so they probably felt like they couldn't delay it again but it feels like they probably should have delayed it again. And it feels like that I thought a couple of months ago that they were going to delay it till next year. I thought it was going to be February, March time next year. I was convinced of it. And it didn't end up being that and it's come out and it's not what people expect. But my hope for it is they did the same with Witcher when it came out. They improved it. It had a lot of bugs. They improved it and it became an amazing game. And there's a lot of history of this now. A lot of a lot of studios, Bungie did the same with Destiny. It came out to very mixed reviews, and they turned it around and made it into something amazing. So they're mm. not they're not going to leave it. They're going to work it in until it becomes something amazing. Um, and and I, it feels like there's so many games that's done this now, where they've they've released it not as good as it could have been, but then make it into something amazing within five months. Mm. That we should kind of stop obsessing over it because it isn't a, an unusual thing. And if you put so much pressure on them to release it, they're going to release it. It isn't what you wanted it to be. It's your fault. You, you yeah, know? totally. I can talk about that a lot. Uh, the whole early access Steam uh, industry and and releasing beta versions of a game to, to uh, you know, customers early. Um, yeah, there's... There's, that's definitely a whole area of the gaming industry that is developing, um, especially now that games are being developed as games as a service, uh, so that it's an ongoing development and yes. updates being provided to the customer. It's, it's a whole different model than what games uh, used to be when you just buy a disc and play the game. Um, unfortunately, I have to take off in a few minutes, Craig. Yeah, um, I'd love to continue talking, but um, yeah, that's... Um, yeah, uh, you've just made me think of so many topics that, that I've realized I haven't talked about online yet, so I need to find a time to talk about those. That's that's good. That's that's exactly what I want to do. I'll let, <laughs> I'll let you get off. Um, is there anything you want to say to, to wrap it up? 
Um, I had one question written down, and that was, why is Figma still free? Um, that was, but uh, it wasn't really a question. It's more of a, um, just, a, I think, a, a sign that, that they're doing some awesome things. I use Figma regularly as well, just even though I'm not really a designer, it's just so much fun to, to play around with and, yeah. and create things from. Let's talk about yeah. it on your podcast. Sounds good. I'd have, I'd love to have you on. Actually, I'll, I'll get I'll get the date um, booked with you that we can have a chat online. Cool. Well, it's been awesome to speak in. Let's chat again soon. Sounds good, Craig. Thanks a lot for having me on. No worries.